But today I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm going to tell you this is part one. We're going to do part two in the second service. But Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the amazing word of God. We thank you for the freedom of the Holy Spirit to minister in this service today. And Holy Spirit, we look to you as the great master teacher. These are not just words. Lord, you are the one who wrote this scripture. You're really the only one that has the authority to teach it. And so today I surrender to you. And we as a people look to you. And we ask you to illuminate our minds and our understanding. And I ask that you would take us into the scriptures until we feel the scriptures, we live the scriptures, and we're changed by them. And we know this can only happen with your wonderful ministry. So we put our eyes on you, on no one else. And today we ask you to teach us in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So open your Bible to 2 Timothy, and today we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. And when you come to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul is writing, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to, either underline or circle those two words, according to, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. But notice in verse 1, Paul says, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And when you read this in the Greek text, these two words, according to, are the little preposition kata, which is spelled K-A-T-A. And in this particular context, it describes a force that is dominating, conquering, or subjugating. And if you were to actually translate this verse correctly, it would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, being dominated, being conquered, being subjugated by the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And it was very, very important that Paul began this epistle in this particular way because at this moment, the church was surrounded by death. And in the midst of this death surrounding, Paul is proclaiming they are dominated, they are conquered, they are subjugated by the promise of life. And the reason they were surrounded by death is because Nero had come to the throne. Now, most people have heard of Nero, but most people do not understand what a dysfunctional family Nero was from. For example, his great-great-uncle was the emperor Titus, I'm Tiberius. The Sea of Galilee was later renamed in his honor, the Sea of Tiberius. If you go to Israel today, there is the city of Tiberius, which sits right on the Sea of Galilee. But Tiberius was a maniac. Tiberius was sexually twisted. In fact, he was so sexually demented that he went to the island of Capri, which people still visit today. He built for himself there a palace and turned Capri into what was called a pleasure island, which basically meant it was a place where orgies took place day and night, 24 hours a day. And we call the Roman senators from Rome to the city of, to the island of Capri, where he would sexually abuse them. And among those that Tiberius abused was his nephew, whose name was Caligula. Have any of you ever heard of Caligula? Caligula, after the death of Tiberius, then became the next Roman emperor. 
And because Caligula, as a teenager, had been so abused by his uncle, he too became very twisted in the way that he thought of himself and in his relationships. In fact, Caligula was so twisted that he married his horse, and he even promoted his horse to the status of senator in the city of Rome. He had three sisters. He had sexual relationship with all three of his sisters, but thankfully, Caligula didn't live very long because he was murdered by his troops. And when he was murdered, then his uncle Claudius became the emperor of the Roman Empire, and Claudius married one of Caligula's sisters, whose name was Agrippina. Now, all of this is very important to the story of 2 Timothy. Agrippina had been sexually abused by her brother Caligula, who had been sexually abused by his uncle Tiberius. Do you see the dysfunction that was in this family? Passed from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Well, Agrippina had a previous marriage, but when Claudius became the Roman emperor, she divorced her husband, married Claudius, and carried into her new marriage a young boy whose name was Nero. But Claudius had another son by a previous marriage whose name was Britannicus. So according to Roman law, it was Britannicus who should become the next Roman emperor. And because Agrippina was very competitive and very power hungry, she did not want Britannicus to be made the next Roman emperor. So she devised a plan for poison mushrooms to be fed to her husband, who was the emperor Claudius. He ate the mushrooms, he died that night, and by morning, her son Nero had been proclaimed the emperor of the Roman Empire. And at that moment, Nero was 16 years old. Now, how many of you have ever had a 16-year-old? Can you imagine placing the entire world and the control of it, all of its wealth and all of its power, in the hands of of a 16-year-old. And what was remarkable, then the first five years that Nero ruled the the empire, he actually did a good job. In fact, they were called the golden years of Nero. But the reason he was such an effective emperor in those first five years is because in the first five years, he was under the mentorship of his teachers whose name were Seneca and Lucy. He listened to them, he submitted to their authority, and he was also submitted to the voice and to the authority of his mother Agrippina, who was quite a controlling woman. But about five years into his rule, Nero decided that he had had enough of submission to authority. So he gave the order for Seneca and Lucy, whose two teachers, to be killed, and they murdered them. Then he began one by one to systematically murder members of the Roman Senate. But there was one voice still speaking into his life that he had come to despise, that it was his mother, Agrippina. How is he going to get rid of his mother? So he went down to his villa, which was on the coast of Rome, and called for his mother to come for dinner. And when his mother came for dinner, he said, Mother, I'm so glad that you could come. I have a gift for you. I have a ship that I have built just for you. And tonight, when dinner is finished, that ship is going to take you home. The ship was beautiful. But what Agrippina did not know is the ship had been built to fall apart at sea so that when the ship would take his mother home, it would fall apart in transport and his mother would drown. That happened, but what they did not take into account was that his mother was such a good swimmer and she swam all the way to the shore 
And when Nero discovered his mother had swum to the shore, he sent his servants who stabbed her to death in her own villa. And finally, Nero was free of every authoritative voice that was speaking into his life. And when he killed his mother, it was like something snapped in his mind. All of the dysfunction of his family was suddenly quickened in him. And Nero believed he was not just the Roman emperor, but he believed that he was God in the flesh. And in fact, in the city of Rome, they had created a God whose name was Diaroma. There was a problem in the Roman Empire because there were so many lands, so many languages, so many cultures, so many different religions. It was very, very diversified, and they needed some way to unify the empire, so they created a brand new god called Dia Rome. It was the divine spirit of Rome, and they said whoever was the current ruling emperor was the embodiment of that divine spirit. So you were not just an emperor, but you were also a god living among men. And when Nero began to wake up to the fact that people believed he was a god living among them, a kind of mania began to develop in his mind. And he began to believe he was the greatest emperor that had ever lived. In fact, he thought he was the greatest of everything. For example, Nero believed he was the greatest actor that had ever stood on the stage. But there was one problem with that. As a Roman emperor, he was not allowed to perform on a stage. It was considered below the dignity of an emperor. But Nero did it anyway because he believed he was the best of all actors. He also believed he was the greatest singer that had ever lived. And he performed on the stage, even though it was forbidden for emperors to do that because it was below their dignity. And in fact, by this time, Nero had begun to kill so many people, the senators, his teacher, his mother, and anyone else who opposed him, that people in general were just terrified of him. And we actually have an account. When he traveled to the country of Greece... He gave a big open concert where he was singing. Historians say it was absolutely wretched because he could not sing, but he believed he was the greatest singer of all. And there was a woman in the crowd who gave birth to her baby during the concert in her seat because she was afraid that if she got up and left the arena to give birth, he would kill her. This is the kind of control and fear that began to pervade the Roman Empire. And Nero believed that he was the greatest architect that had ever lived. So he came up with an idea to tear down the oldest section of Rome and to rebuild it with his own palace in the middle of it, a palace which would be called the Golden Palace, a palace so immense it would comprise 300 acres. Now maybe you've seen a big house but no one in this room has a house that is 300 acres. And the reason it was called the Golden Palace is because he veneered the entire exterior of it with mother of pearl, and then on top of the mother of pearl, he covered layers of gold, so the whole house glistened in the sunlight. It was called the Golden Palace. And in the very middle of it, there would be a man-made lake with ships, and right in the middle of the lake, there would be a 30-meter statue, which is nearly 100 feet of Nero himself, fashioned after the god Helios. But rather than have the face of Helios with all the sunbeams going out from the face, it was the face of Nero. It was his declaration that his face was shining upon all the lands of the Roman Empire. So he went before the Roman Senate in the Senate House, which still stands in the Forum in the city of Rome today. 
And he presented his proposal to the senators. He said, I want to tear down the oldest section of Rome, which happened to be where the senators lived. And I want to rebuild this section of Rome, build my palace in the middle of it. And not only that, I want to do away with the name Rome, and I want to rename this city Neropolis, the city of Nero. And the Roman senates worked up the nerve to say, absolutely not. We will stand against you. We will not allow you to do this. This is the end of what we will permit. Nero was so incensed by their refusal that he went to his villa outside the city of Rome so he would not be close to Rome where a crime was about to be connected and no one would affiliate him with the crime. He called his servants to his villa and he said, if they will not let me tear down that section of Rome, we're going to burn it down. And he commanded his servants to go into the city, into Circus Maximus, which is where all of the chariot races took place. And he commanded them to go there when chariot races were not being carried out so no one would see what was happening. And he ordered them to set fire in one section of the Circus Maximus. And that is what they did. And soon the fire began to burn. Embers began to be carried across the city of Rome. And the city of Rome began to burn. What was really tragic was in the city of Rome, which was one million people, 300,000 of them were slaves who lived in little shanties made out of wood, hay, and stubble. That's what the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He talks about things made out of wood, hay, and stubble that go up in a puff of smoke. And suddenly all those little shanties for the slaves went up in a puff of smoke. And because they were made out of wood, hay, and stubble, more embers began to be carried into the sky and were carried across the city. And the fire burned for five days. Finally, they extinguished it. They thought it was out. The fires reignited. And by the time the fires were finished, the fire had burned for more than 20 days. And when the fire was finished, the entire city of Rome had been scorched. But the section where Nero wanted to build his house was now cleared, and he began construction on his marvelous palace. And today you can still visit parts of it, which is underground in the city of Rome. But when the palace was finished, rumors began to spread on the streets of Rome that it was Nero's servants who had started the blaze. And in fact, there was sufficient evidence of this that the Roman Senate called Nero to the Senate house in the middle of the forum to put him on trial and to execute him. And while he was en route to the Roman Senate, he devised a diabolical plan about who he could blame for this fire. And when he finally stood in front of the Senate, he said, how could you think that I, Nero, would burn the eternal beloved city of Rome? I can tell you who has done this. My spies have brought me information. And the Senate said, please, Nero, tell us who burned down the city of Rome. And Nero said, that new group in town called Christians, they are the ones who burned down the city of Rome. And in that moment, he brought five allegations against believers. And here are the allegations. Number one. He said, Christians are lawbreakers. And in a certain sense, he was right. Because at that time, you could not publicly meet like we're meeting today unless you had the approval of the emperor. And the emperor never gave them 
approval, which meant every time Christians met together to study, to pray, or to worship, they were breaking the law, and the emperor would not give them permission. And yet the Bible says we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, so the early church had to decide whose law they were going to obey. And you obey man's law as long as you can. But when man's law is in violation of God's law, then you have to choose God's law. And sometimes when you choose God's law, it puts you in violation with man's law. So in a very real sense, by obeying God's law, the early believers were living contrary to Roman law. They were lawbreakers. Secondly, he said not only are they lawbreakers, but in their illegal underground meetings, they're talking about another king and another kingdom. Well, of course, we know they were talking about the kingdom of God and they were talking about King Jesus. But Nero projected this as if they were governmental subverters planning the overthrow of the government and the introduction of a new king. So he said, number one, they are lawbreakers. Number two, they are subverters of government. Number three, he said, as if that is not enough. These Christians are sexual deviants. They said, why do you say that? He said, because in their illegal underground meetings where they're planning the overthrow of the government, they also practice something called the love feast. Well, the love feast was a time when believers would just get together and have a meal together and have fellowship. But Nero himself was so sexually twisted, he was so demented and perverted, that in his own time as emperor, he was married to two men. We're talking about a man that was very twisted. In fact, he had a wife that he loved, but he got mad at her when she was pregnant, kicked her in the stomach, and killed her. He felt such remorse about killing his wife that he took his boyfriend and dressed him in his dead wife's clothes and went everywhere he went with his dead wife as if she was still alive, but it was a man that he was married to. We're talking about a man that was very twisted. And the reason that I'm telling you this is for a pervert To call somebody else a pervert, he must have said something really, really bad. And he said, these Christians, these diabolical Christians, in their underground meetings where they're planning the overthrow of the government, are also practicing sexual deviant behavior on a scale beyond our imagination. But he said, that's not all. He said, in these illegal meetings, where they're planning the overthrow of the government and practicing sexual deviancy, They're also practicing cannibalism. They said, cannibalism? He said, yes. Jesus, the leader of their sect, said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And on the basis of those words of Jesus, which he twisted, he convinced the Roman Senate that early Christians were committing cannibalism, and this particular argument was so effective, the early church had to fight rumors of cannibalism for 200 years after that. But finally, number five, he said, I don't know why you would think I burned down the city of Rome. Why, these Christians have been standing on our street corners. They've been openly preaching that one day a judgment is coming that will be marked by fire. We should have listened to them because they were giving us a secret signal that they were going to burn down the city of Rome. And by the time that he was finished with these five allegations, he was so convincing that the Roman Senate believed him. 
And for the first time in the history of Christianity, a governmental persecution began. Now, up until that time, there had been religious persecution. If you read the book of Acts, the persecution we read about in the book of Acts is not primarily governmental. It is a religious persecution. This was the first time the government began to prosecute and persecute believers on the charge that they were the arsonists who burned down the city of Rome. So Christians began to be rounded up in the largest cities of the Roman Empire. The largest city was Rome. The second largest city was Alexandria. The next largest city was Antioch. The fourth largest city in the Roman Empire was the city of Ephesus. And in all four of these cities, Christians are being rounded up. They're being put in prison, killed, not for faith, but they are being killed as arsonists. And if you would remember from your study of history, Christians were burned at the stake. Do you remember that? Do you know why they were burned at the stake? Because Romans killed you commensurate with your crime. If you were a thief, they would cut your arm off. But if you were an arson, then they would burn you with fire. And that's why the Christians were burned with fire, because the charge of arsony had been brought against them. And in fact, today, if you go to the city of Rome and you take a a tour of the Colosseum and you pay a very high-level tour guide, they will tell you no Christian ever died in the Colosseum for their faith, and they will make you think that Christians were not really killed there. But they were killed there in vast numbers, not as Christians. They were killed as common criminals and as arsonists. And when you come to the book of 2 Timothy... The Apostle Paul has been arrested, charged with arsony. He was not even in the city of Rome when the great fire took place in the year 64. In fact, when Paul was arrested, he was in the city of Troas, which is the northwestern Turkey. The old name of Troas is Troy. That's where he was. He was ministering to a church there when there was a knock on his door, and suddenly Roman guards stood and arrested him, transported him to the city of Rome. They were thrilled that they had gotten their hand on him because he was such a notable leader of the Christians. And in fact, they alleged that Paul was one of the conspirators who planned the great arson that burned down the city of Rome. And when we come to the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison in the city of Rome. And the fake news is on the streets (laughs) that they have found one of the chief arsonists who planned the fire. And just like today, people listen to the news and they watch the news on TV or they look at the news on the internet or social media. In the first century, they also had news. Entire walls were covered with documents where you could stop and read the latest news. And now all over the city of Rome, people are stopping. They're gathering around the news walls to read that one of the chief arsonists of the fire of Rome has been arrested. His name is Paul of Tarsus. He is already in prison in Rome. The entire city of Rome is rejoicing because the chief arsonist has been found and has been arrested and is now waiting for his execution. And because Paul is in prison, he cannot say a word in his defense. He can do nothing but sit there knowing who he is, knowing who he is in the Lord, knowing the truth about himself in spite of what everybody else is saying about him. And here we find a very important truth, my friends. You need to know who you are in spite of what people say about you. 
And while he is in prison, he has received a letter from Timothy. Now, someone usually asks, if he's a prisoner waiting for his own execution, how can he receive a letter? Because he was a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he had the right to receive mail. Now he has received a letter, and the letter has come from Timothy, who is serving as the senior pastor of the church of Ephesus. Three years earlier, he had written another letter to Timothy called 1 Timothy, which was a letter about church organization. And the reason he wrote that letter is because the church was growing so fast. Timothy needed understanding about how to build a church, how to choose men, what to do with the women, how to structure a church because the church was growing so fast. But there are three letters between these two books. And when we come to 2 Timothy, we find that just like the church had grown so fast, now the church is declining rapidly. People are bailing out of their faith to save their lives. Many of them are being rounded up. They're being burnt in the stadium in the city of Ephesus, which you can still visit today. And Timothy is in a state of despair. First, he's in a state of despair because people who he thought would always be faithful, came to him and said, hey, pastor, we love you, but you know, this is more serious than we ever thought our faith would be, and we'll see you later. And people by the droves began walking out that he always thought he could depend on. Secondly, he was in a state of despair because his church was in decline. This church which was the biggest church in the world of that time. It had more than 100,000 members. Now the church is in decline. And in fact, so many people are dying for their faith that can't even keep up with the funerals that they have to conduct. But number three, Timothy is dealing with a spirit of fear because he knows he is the most visible Christian in the city. Now, nearby Ephesus on the top of a hill, there was another visible Christian, the Apostle John. And the Apostle John lived on the hill just on the other side of the Temple of Artemis, but he was out of sight, and the government left him alone because he was not in the city. But Timothy lived right in the city, and he knew that if they would find him, not only would they arrest him, but his death would be grueling. It would be a most horrific death in order to be an example to the believers who remained faithful and to scare them out of their faith. And Timothy knew at any moment there could be a knock at his door. And if he opened his door and saw Roman soldiers standing there, he knew he would be arrested. And in front of him would be a horrific martyrdom. He knew that. And a spirit of fear began to operate in this young man who at this particular time was in his early 40s. He was in his early 40s, pastoring the biggest church in the world, in decline, dealing with a spirit of fear. He didn't know who else to reach out to for help, so he wrote a letter to Paul. Paul is sitting in prison. He already knows the date of his execution, and he receives a letter from Timothy that must have said something like this. Paul, I'm really going through a hard time. Isn't it amazing? Timothy was writing to Paul, who wasn't just wondering what was going to happen to him. He knew his execution date, and Timothy is writing him for help and encouragement. And the letter must have said, I'm hurt by people that have walked out on me. I thought they would be faithful. They have abandoned me. 
Abandonment is very, very hurtful. And Timothy was just gripped with abandonment. Paul, I don't know when they're going to knock on my door and they're going to arrest me. I'm so afraid. And he wrote a letter and asked Paul for help and encouragement. And Paul, sitting in prison, knowing his execution date had been set for a crime that he did not commit, knowing the entire city of Rome was filled with fake news about him, and because of where he was, he could not even defend himself, he now takes a parchment and a writing instrument and begins to write back to Timothy to respond to Timothy's need. That leads us back to verse 1. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the Greek word kata, being dominated, conquered, subjugated by the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, which means Paul chose what he was going to think about. He also could have been dominated by a spirit of fear, but he chose to be dominated by the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. We have to choose what we're going to think about. And Paul in that prison was making right choices. He said, I'm dominated, I'm subjugated, I'm conquered by life that is in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 2 he says, To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. But notice in the salutation he says, grace, mercy, and peace. Well, when you read most of Paul's salutations, he just says, grace and peace be unto you. Only three times does he insert the word mercy between grace and peace. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and the book of Titus. And if you look at all three of those examples, in every case, he's writing to a young man in the ministry who feels very overwhelmed by his situation. First Timothy, Timothy was overwhelmed because the church was growing. Second Timothy, he's overwhelmed because the church is declining. How about Titus? Well, Paul tells us in the first chapter of Titus, Titus, I left you in Crete that you might set in order the things that are Lacking The Greek literally means that you might give order to those folks and finish what I did not get done. And then he begins to describe the congregation of the Cretans when he says Cretans are lazy, liars, slow bellies. They were known to be a rebellious group. And now Titus has been left there among all of these barbarians to give order to them. In all three cases... The recipient didn't just need to hear about grace and peace. They needed mercy. And now we find that when somebody is overwhelmed by what they're facing in life, God doesn't just give you grace and peace, but he tucks mercy between the grace and the peace, which means God extends mercy to those that are overwhelmed. And the word mercy is the Greek word elios. It's not a pity that just feels sorry for. It is a compassion that is moved to action. It empowers you to deal with what you're facing. And then verse 3 says, I thank my God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. This word remembrance is the Greek word menea. The word menea is the Greek word for a statue, a monument, or a memorial. Another place where this is used is in Acts chapter 10, verse 4, when an angel appears to Cornelius at the householder of Cornelius, and the angel says, Cornelius, do you remember what he says? Your prayers and your alms are come up as a 
memorial before God. The word before is very important because it means right in the very presence or right in the very eyesight of God, which means when we pray and when we give in faith, it's not just money we give that disappears or prayers we speak, the sound just dissipates, but our acts of faith ascend into the very presence of God before God, and our prayers and our acts of faith stand there like eternal monuments so that God is confronted by our act of faith or by the prayer of faith that we have prayed, and God sees it as a living monument or a memorial. And now when you come to verse 3, he says, Timothy, without ceasing, the Greek says, without a single pause, I'm making mention of you, a little translation, I'm building statues, monuments, and memorials of you in the presence of God so that everywhere God sees, he sees you there, he sees you there, he sees you there, he sees you there. God is confronted with you and what you're going through because I am loading the throne room of heaven with memorials of you. I remember when my grandmother Renner was 92 years old. I had seven grandmothers when I was born. My grandmother Renner, I went to see her and she said, oh, Ricky, I'm just good for nothing. She said, I just sit in this chair. It's all I can do is just sit here and pray for you. I said, Grandma, it's probably the most effective thing you've ever done for me. Keep praying for me. Fill the throne room of heaven with pictures of Rick Renner so that everywhere God looks, he sees me there, he sees me there, he sees me. I don't want God to ever lose sight of me. And now Paul says, I'm not taking a single pause. I'm building statues, monuments, and memorials of you day and night. And then in verse 4, he says, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears. The word tears here describes a real teardrop, and scholars say that when Paul had unrolled this scroll and had read Timothy's letter, he could see the stains of Timothy's tears on the parchment. And he knew that Timothy had a spirit of fear and was in a state of emotion. Then in verse 5, he says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which first dwelt in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that in thee also. But wait, 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 wait. Here Timothy is going through this really rough period of time. He's saying to Paul, please encourage me, please help me. And when we get to verse 5, Paul says, you know, Timothy, I was thinking the other day about your grandmother Lois, and I was thinking about your mama Eunice. Timothy may have thought to himself, why are you talking to me about my grandmother? Why are you talking to me about my mama? Talk to me about me. I'm the one that's in need. But the reason Paul began to talk to Timothy about his heritage is because there was something important that Timothy was forgetting. He said, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith. Unfeigned is really from the word feigned. The word feigned and the word hypocrite are the same words in the Greek language. It's a hypocritical faith. And this word hypocrite was used to describe an actor who would stand on the stage and he would wear a mask or he would wear a face in order to please the crowd. And he would readily change faces and change masks according to the crowd that he was speaking to. And therefore, he was inauthentic. He was a phony. He was bogus. There was nothing real about him. It was nothing more than an actor on the stage playing for the applause of the crowd. 
That is why Jesus used this word to describe the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth, which was nearby Sepphoris, where there was a theater that seated 5,000 people. And when Jesus was growing up, he saw these actors on the stage who would do anything for the applause of the crowd. And when Jesus called scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, it really meant, hey, guys, I know who you are. I've seen people like you before. You're nothing but religious phonies. You're pretenders. You're bogus. Just perform for the people that are watching you. There's nothing authentic about you whatsoever. But now he says to Timothy, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith, not a phony faith, not a fake faith, a real legitimate faith, an unbendable, unbreakable faith, Paul says that is in you, which dwelt First, in thy grandmother, Lois, the word dwelt, the Greek word in, oikeo, the word in means to be in something. The word oikeo means to house or to live. It literally lived in his grandmother. It thrived. It took up residency in her and in your mother, Eunice. And I'm persuaded that this same unbendable, unbreakable, real, authentic, workable faith is in you too. Verse 6. Wherefore, I put you in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. A better translation of verse 6 would be like this, Wherefore I am reminding you of these things, that by your remembering them, by your remembering them, you might stir up the gift of God that is in thee. And what is Paul reminding him of? that his grandmother had an authentic, unbendable, unbreakable faith, and God never failed his grandmother. That faith was passed to his mother, who also had an unbendable, unbreakable faith, and God was never unfaithful to his mother. God's faithfulness is a part of Timothy's heritage. If he'll stop looking at the present and the mountain that is in front of him and turn around to remember his past... He probably will recall that he's been through very rough episodes previously in his life. And my friends, in the same way, when you're facing a mountain, it only looks enormous because it's the one that you're looking at right now. But in reality, in your past, you have faced many insurmountable mountains. You're just forgetting. This is a bad memory. Turn around, look at your past, and remember the last time you didn't know if you'd had the bills to pay, if you didn't know if you had food on your table, if you had a roof over your head, and by the time you walk through all those previous difficult moments up to the present, the mountain that you're looking at right now, it will not look so big after all. It's probably really not any harder than anything you've already been through. And that is why Paul is reminding Timothy of his past. Timothy, turn around. Remember, God's faithfulness is a part of your heritage. And I'm reminding you of these things that by your remembering them, you might stir up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on of my hands. Now, If he had said, Timothy, memorize scripture to stir up the gift of God. Or if he had said that to us, somebody could rightfully say, I I just don't have the ability to memorize scripture. If he had said fast, somebody might say, well, I have a medical problem. I can't fast. You know, I, I just can't do that. But he said, remember, and remembering is something we all can do. 
And here we find that just like you use a poker to stir the embers in a fire, our memory is a poker. And if we will use our memory and remember, 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 remember the faithfulness of God in the past, we will stir ourselves up into what we're facing today is not so big after all. God has given to all of us the power of memory. And then in verse 7, we're going to conclude, for God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And of a sound mind. Notice he calls fear a spirit. How many of you know that fear is a spirit? You can feel fear when it enters the room. And fear had entered the Roman Empire. And Paul says, God has not given you a spirit of fear. The Greek word delias for fear, which really is the word for a coward, which means when you're operating in a spirit of fear, you're no longer moving forward, you're moving backward. You're no longer thinking about ground you can take, you're thinking about ground you can protect. You're in a receding mode rather than moving forward. He says, God did not give you this spirit of fear that's turning you into a coward, but God has given you power, he's given you love, and he has given you a sound mind. What is power? What is love? And what is a sound mind? And how do you get rid of a spirit of fear if it's trying to wrap its tentacles around you? That's what we're going to talk about in the next service. But I pray you've gotten enough out of this that this is a blessing to you today. But we're going to pick up here in the next service. But I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you in the wonderful name of Jesus for the word of God. Holy Spirit, today we ask you to activate us and take us into the scriptures. I believe that you've done that today, and I thank you for that. Thank you that what we're facing today is not any more severe than anything we haven't already faced in the past. And if you can walk us through that, you'll walk us through this. We thank you you've not given us a spirit of fear, but you have given us power, love, and a sound mind. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. Pastor Mac. Yeah.